This episode is sponsored by Patagonia. In 1972, Chenard Equipment bet the farm, urging climbers to stop using their best-selling product in order to protect the rock. Clean climbing, making the switch from pitons to chocks, fundamentally changed both the art of the sport and the ethos of the community. It was climbing's first environmental movement and instilled the values that drive Patagonia to this day. But more importantly, it was a challenge. What are climbers capable of achieving in order to protect the places we love? 50 years later, Patagonia is asking that question again. They're still committed to the vertical wilderness and putting style over summit. It's a commitment to the sport we love, their technical climb product, and the planet we're still working to save. Go to patagonia.com slash clean climbing to learn more. This episode is also sponsored by Sterling. A wet rope is heavy, hard to handle, and can be flat out dangerous. That's why Sterling developed their new line of dry climbing ropes using Zero's technology. Zero's is a whole new way to manufacture UIAA certified dry ropes that are more effective, wear resistant, better for the environment, and only available from Sterling. Visit sterlingrope.com to learn more and use the code DIRTBACK for 15% off. And you can also find these links in our show notes. Welcome to the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from the Climbing Zine. I am Luke Mihal, and this is Season 4, Episode 6, Conversation with Lauren Delaney Miller. And Lauren is another uh, pen pal zine friend. Um, she published in Volume 12, as we talk about in the story. And I finally met her in Yosemite. I talk about that a lot on this podcast, is that a lot of the people I work with in the zine, they turn into these pen pal friends in... Um, I'm almost always more impressed by the people when I meet them, and that was certainly the case with Lauren. She is the author of Valley of Giants. It's a new book about the history of women climbing in Yosemite, and she gave a presentation that we talk about in this interview as well at the Yosemite facelift. She got a standing ovation. It was moving. It was something I'd never seen in 20 plus years of climbing slideshows, and I think it's a testament to the energy she put into the book into her work and very excited to see where this young woman goes next with her career um, she's currently getting a degree a master's degree in journalism such a pleasure to connect with her and just a real honest conversation about climbing and about the journey of climbing and, and some of the heartache that also goes along with it and of course a lot of history if you enjoy this podcast, please support us on Patreon or please pick up a subscription or some merch or some books in our online store. We've got links in our show notes. Uh, one of those links gets you a 50% off discount and uh, we'll put a little link to uh, Lauren's book in there as well. This episode of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast is sponsored by Kilter. Looking for a fun way to train at home or at the gym? Check out the Kilter board. The Kilter Board has innovative light-up holds, a progressive app with animated functions, climbs for all abilities, and two layouts to choose from with large international online communities for each. There are over 66,000 problems in the original Kilter Board layout, and the newer Homebuilder layout comes with over 6,300 problems. You can set, tick climbs, make shareable playlists, watch send videos for motivation and beta, and even add your own videos to share with other users. The new map feature helps you find and connect to Kilter boards nearest you. Kilter has multiple wall sizes and package options available, 
so we can help you get a kilter board in almost any space. Check out Kilter at settercloset.com and look for more information in our show notes. This episode is also sponsored by Scarpa. Scarpa's approach to climbing shoe design mirrors their approach to the pursuit of climbing itself. They strive to evolve and incorporate new ideas and techniques every step of the way. They refine their strengths, train their weaknesses, and build on each success. Scarpa has been bolstering its climbing shoe foundations by continuing to create versatile, high-quality designs that satisfy the needs of climbers across a range of disciplines and skill levels. For more information, visit scarpa.com and look for a link in our show notes. All right, hope you all enjoy this conversation. I'm sitting here with Lauren Delaney Miller here in El Cap Meadow, my new favorite uh, interview spot. Thanks for coming on and chatting with me. Thanks, Luke. Yeah, this is definitely the coolest place that I've done an interview to. Yeah, when, when we're and we're talking about El Cap stories, we can just look up and be like, oh, we're right there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad I went to your presentation. The other night, I was actually kind of your, your warm-up act, <laughs> which is a, a good role for me. But in 20-plus years of climbing slideshows, I don't think I've ever seen anything like the reaction to your presentation in, in your book, Valley of Giants. And what's the subtitle? Uh, stories from women at the heart of Yosemite climbing. <laughs> and uh, I love how you analyze the titles and everything. <laughs> we can talk about that. But yeah, I just had never seen anything like it. And I think that, you know, the term like slideshow by death is definitely or death by slideshow yeah. or whatever. Um, I think it's a critique I have of a lot of, of climbing slideshows. And I know you had the home court advantage mm -hmm. <laughs> as well. Definitely. And just for the listener, for perspective, we're here at the Yosemite Facelift, um, one of the funnest climbing events. Picking up, They pick up a ton of trash and, and make us climbers look good in the park. And maybe we didn't for look sure. so good um, <laughs> 10, 20 years ago. But um, how did that night feel to you? Like you said, you're still, you're still buzzing off of it. Mm -hmm. How did that feel for you to, to be so warmly regarded by your community Oh, it was like unlike anything I feel like I've ever really experienced. Like I put out this book in April and I've done a couple really amazing book events. I went to Joshua Tree in the spring and it was similar in terms of like there was a lot of people. They were really excited and it felt like a big community event. But like this totally was its own level. I mean, like for people that weren't there, like there's, I don't know, two or 300 people in a packed auditorium with like people spilling out the doors and watching on a screen outside. And um, yeah, I just like, I feel like it was the first time I really had a realization how important this book is to people. And I think I set out being like, oh, well, I'm gonna like put together some cool stories. My friends will love it. And like, didn't think about it much more than that. And so to like, you know, of course there were tons of friends in the audience as well. And I know that they're there to support me no matter what my book was, but like, man, the lights came on at the end and I saw all these crying people, like a lot, like there was so much emotion in the room. And I think that like, that's something that I wasn't really totally anticipating. And then throughout the rest of the weekend, like strangers have been coming up to me and just being like, thank you so much for your presentation. And it's so weird to take it from like, oh, I thought I was kind of just like making a cool thing for my friends. And to realize like that the impact of that is much broader. It has been like, yeah, totally mind blowing. It's so hard to describe. 
do you think that is because I, I think a main theme in your presentation um two main themes like i just love how i could see you as like a librarian when you're like retired or something oh, sure. like sure. the excited librarian that you walk in and you see i had a librarian like that when i went to college uh, shout out to patrick <laughs> the yeah. librarian at uh, western colorado university um the other theme was that women's stories have been overlooked in yosemite do you think that was a big part of of the response of like women being seen in climbing? And I think, you know, especially compared to other sports, women and men are, are very much on an equal playing field in climbing. Um, do you think that was part of the emotional response is that people reacting to the telling of these stories that maybe have been overlooked? Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Like it's one of the things that's been really cool talking about the book just over the past couple months, too, is like seeing people who know a lot of the people in my book and always felt like those people didn't get enough cred for the cool things that they were doing being like yes like people like Sally Moser and Julie Brugger like they're finally getting some um, shout outs that they have deserved you know for the last 50 years or something like that and but I also feel like it's really cool something else that's happening is that like even hardcore Yosemite climbers are going well, I'd never heard of these people before and I think that that's having a profound impact on people because they're realizing oh I feel like even like the most hardcore Yosemite history nerds are going, wow, there are a lot of stories here that I've never heard before. And I thought I heard it all. And I think that that's something that's really cool. And like something I really wanted to drive home was just that like, it's easy to overlook stories and that's why we need to like try harder to seek them out. You know, and I include these quotes like by Steve Roper and Galen Rowell. And you're like, I'm not trying to talk shit. I'm just trying to say, you know, that like, yeah, it's like, I've missed these stories as well. Like I talk about my neighbor, Lisa, and how I didn't know about her first few months of Goldfinger, right? And you're like, yeah, it's easy. The point is that it's really easy to miss these stories if we don't like create space for them. And so I feel like that's something that people are coming to terms with when they hear me talk about the book and that it's hard. And that like, I feel like I put a lot of work into like really seeking out those stories and like going to the, like taking it to another level because it really like required that. Yeah, yeah, it was just uh it was such a such a fun night and such an insightful presentation and I want to go back a little bit to how you started climbing because in in our connection um I think talking nerding out on writing I think this podcast nerds out on writing more than any climbing <laughs> podcast and I'm proud of that. You wrote a really fantastic story, The Joy Pendulum in volume 12 of The Climbing Zine, which is historically my favorite issue of mm -hmm. The Climbing Zine. We're going to include some of those essays, most of those essays, in the second Climbing Zine book. Oh, awesome. So I'll have another so check cool. for you <laughs> for the republish it, uh, republishing of that. And that issue now seems a little old school. It's almost out of print, actually. So yeah. there's, uh, I think we had 5,000 of that one. So wow, they're almost all out crazy. there. But you you wrote just an amazing piece. I, I was honored that that you you said that that contributed some of your confidence mm -hmm. with writing too, and I feel like that's almost my life's mission at this point, um, just to just to provide that spark. And it means someone when someone says that, like especially publicly, it just like may, means the world to me. Um, I feel like we're just gonna cry. <laughs> I'm just gonna cry this whole time. <laughs> Sorry for people listening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and for some context, well, I want I want to start way back because I love that you started climbing because you saw Alex Honnold on the cover of National mm -hmm. Geographic. <laughs> I love that. Um, could you just talk about like just where it starts? Because I feel like that's an old school story. I hear that story from from climbers that are older than me 
that like how'd you find climbing if you weren't exposed to it in your backyard it's national geographic <laughs> and yeah. you're uh um i'm guessing you're in your how old are you i'm 30 you're 30 yeah so you're you're young yeah. <laughs> you're a young person <laughs> but national geographic was still how it connected for you uh could you just talk a little bit about that and um yeah just what you remember about seeing alex yeah. on the on the cover i'm guessing you're talking about the alone on the wall cover yeah. mm-hmm. when Alex is doing the classic Honolding mm-hmm. um, pose, which was like a, a theme for a while. Totally. <laughs> Honolding. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, it is kind of funny and it feels really old school, which I didn't really know at the time. But like I was just not outdoorsy. Like my family didn't hike. We didn't camp. Like I would just I didn't do sports. Like I wasn't into any of that stuff. And then. Yeah, like I literally was just in a doctor's office waiting room and had to wait a super long time. And I'd actually like just watched a Ken Burns National Parks documentary on Netflix or something. And it was the first time I even heard of Yosemite. And I um, then so the next day when I went to the doctor's office and like this cover that had just come out, this National Geographic with Alex Hundled on Half Dome on the front had just come out and it was sitting on top of this pile. I was like, oh, Yosemite, I just heard of that place. And I mean, I was like 20 one or 20 years old or something and I like didn't know that rock climbing even existed like I knew that people climbed mountains but I don't think I really knew about like rock climbing I can't even really remember knowing that Yosemite existed before I'd never been to a national park or anything like that and I had so much time in the waiting room to like read this article and I feel like what really struck me about that picture in particular was just that like wow it must be crazy to look down at the ground from up there and I felt like it was just something I couldn't relate to in like any way And then at some point while reading the article, I like had this light bulb moment that the climbing gym at my college at the University of North Carolina must somehow be connected to what Alex's Honnold is doing up here. And I was like, oh, I bet I could do that. And it's just like, yeah, when I talk to my family about it now, we're like, it is really strange that I got into climbing at all because I wasn't athletic, outdoorsy or anything. Like I didn't know, like on my very first climbing trip, I had no idea where we were going to stay. Like I didn't even think that you might camp. I didn't know that that would have been part of climbing. Like I just didn't know anything about it. And I think that it was a time, like I didn't love what I was studying in college. I felt a little bit lost. And then once I started climbing, as you know, it's something that like kind of rewards you for putting your whole self into it. And I felt like so absorbed by it for the first time ever. And like I sucked at climbing and I feel like I've talked about this a little before too, is just that like, I've, I don't know, I've always gravitated towards things that feel like I'm naturally good at them. And maybe a lot of people do this, but for some reason I was so naturally bad at climbing that it like enticed me in a way and interested me in a way that I feel like I'd never really like been challenged before. I don't really know if that makes sense, but like that I was not sense. a natural athlete <laughs> in any way. Do <laughs> you go to the climbing gym? Is that the next step? Yeah, I yeah. go to the climbing gym. Uh-huh. And I'm like, I need to learn how to belay so that I can climb El Capitan. (laughs) Like, I was just like, that seems cool. And like, I think I've always been really into Yosemite because that was how I learned about climbing. And what made sense to me at the beginning is that like a climber's goal would always be to climb bigger and bigger rocks. Like I had no idea what the sport was about. And so I think that made me originally super obsessed with Yosemite because I was like, well, it seems like the biggest rocks around. And if you were a climber, it would make sense that your natural goals would be to like climb the biggest possible rocks like I didn't understand bouldering or anything about difficulty or single pitch hard lines or anything like that and so I think I always was just like oh well if you're a climber then your goal should be to go to Yosemite because it makes sense that your goal is to climb bigger rocks but yeah started in the gym in central North Carolina and started going on trips um with the climbing club like out to crags around North Carolina and then eventually like 
upgrading to like a gym outside of Raleigh where you could learn how to lead and things like that. And there were more climbers there and you could like, um, eventually like started tagging along on trips to the new river gorge. And that's kind of where I was like, Oh, where are we going to stay on our climbing trip? And they're like, well, we're going to camp in the campground. And I was like, Ooh, had to like get a sleeping bag and all this stuff. Cause I didn't have any of that. And it's like a huge transition. Like for people, I feel like that knew me in my pre climber life are kind of like, yeah, didn't really get it at the time, but it's cool <laughs> that you're doing something so wildly different than I was like before. And how long did it take you to get to Yosemite? Um, I must have come like five years later. Mm-hmm. And what brought you out of here? At some point was like, okay, so I'm a really like, you know, list and goal oriented person, mm-hmm. sometimes like in a less healthy way. But at the time I was like, well, I want to climb in Yosemite. So I need to learn how to tread climb. I need to learn how to big wall climb. And I was someone that was like jugging fixed lines and trees to like learn how to do mar and stuff like that. But I was like, okay, I really just felt so intimidated by Yosemite that I stayed away for a number of years. Cause I was just like, I don't know if I'm going to go all the way out there. And like, I don't know, I just always felt like someone that was like, oh, if I could just go to California someday, that would be really cool. Like never imagined that I would ever like live out here or work in the park or anything. And so first I moved, um, I moved around a little bit after college, but eventually I ended up in Estes Park because I read on Mountain Project that someone was saying that Lumpy Ridge was a great place to get ready to climb in Yosemite. And I was like, that's what I need. And I had been to Boulder. And so then I started like making trips up to Estes and eventually moved up to Estes because I was like, oh, that's what I need is like the perfect stepping stone. And now in retrospect, I'm like, yeah, I guess Lumpy Ridge and Yosemite are kind of similar, but not even, I don't even know if I would say that that's the best place ever to like learn how to climb here, but it doesn't matter. Cause then I like spent two awesome years in Estes Park and like climbed a lot around the park and on Lumpy Ridge and stuff like that there and had a really good climbing partner named Sarah. And so after our first full year in Estes, we like saved up a bunch of money and we're like, okay, we're going to go to Yosemite in the fall and like made the plan, you know, a year in advance so that we could save up enough money to try to take like two full months off or something. And I had like a Ford Explorer that we called the Exploder because it was breaking down all the time. And we converted it. We like folded it by just folding down the back seats and essentially building like a table that we could put a little mattress on. Uh-huh. And we like slipped it in there and had all the storage underneath. And the two of, I, two of us just like drove out to Yosemite and spent like two months here in the fall doing the like totally stereotypical Yosemite dirtbag thing like hiding from Pinky in Camp 4. We tried to register each as just like the same person once in a while and like this like make it seem like there was just one of us camping at a time but we were really both there so that we wouldn't like exceed our camping limits I don't know it was just like an amazing trip and then we just really like climbed classic moderates around the park I think I gmarred the leaning tower on that first trip with a friend but like I didn't um really do any wall stuff but I was like oh I could like climb five nine and so it was like when you can climb five nine in the valley it feels like this whole world has like opened up to you because there's like so many incredible multi-pitch moderates and it was like I felt like I came at the perfect time because all of those like like I remember doing my first five nine in the valley and just being like over the moon because I felt like a real climber you know and I felt like I just nailed it like I feel like I came with enough preparation but didn't without over preparing so that it still just felt like um, I could start from like the beginning of the Super Turbo guidebook and like just start working my way up. And yeah, we had a really, really good trip. I love that. Something that strikes me um, about 
especially in that story, and hopefully I don't make you cry, but if you do cry, it's totally fine. <laughs> um, we just put it out an episode uh, with uh, my friend Janae was a guest host with Marcus Garcia, Janae Durgi and, and Marcus Garcia, and we titled it How to Cry on a Mountain because <laughs> they just talked about a lot of deep stuff. But it, it really struck me in your essay that you, after, I'm guessing after all this preparation, then you're you're doing big walls, and then all of a sudden you're doing big walls with you know, these big time names in, in climbing, you know, Quinn Brett and Josie McKee, and I'm sure others as well. But then you're also seeing the grim realities of climbing. And, and to me, it seems so quickly, but maybe it, it didn't to you. Can you just talk a little bit about that, about, you know, going from this, this seeing the cover of National Geographic and then, um, and, and you expressed, you know, and, and I think we all, we all, anyone who has friends that are connected to big walls or alpinism or even just climbing in general, we experience the loss within any, any amount of time period. But can you just talk about how, how, how that kind of impacted your, your perspective on climbing? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Like it was a really interesting, tra- like, I don't know, trajectory, I guess, because I, it took me like years to work up to getting to Yosemite, you know, and then I just came and climbed moderates, but then it started like speeding up and speeding up. And that like the next season I came back in the spring and like climbed El Cap for the first time. And then that fall, I climbed it in a day. And then, you know, like a couple weeks later, I was up there with Josie and Quinn and it just felt like it was speeding up. Yeah. Um, sorry, can I also back up to, cause you told a hilarious story about, was that your first time up El Cap with your yeah. friend Sarah? And there's that classic photo of you just mm-hmm. being relieved at the top. Every time I post that on Instagram, it just gets a lot of, yeah. a lot of buzz. Can you talk about your first time up El Cap oh with her? God. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm this actually, is, what's your friend's name? Sarah? Sarah Crozier. Sarah mm-hmm. Crozier. Yeah. Yeah. Sarah's a, back in Estes. She's a climbing ranger there now. And, um, yeah. So we came back after our first trip and we just climbed a lot of moderates. We came back. Oh God. It might've even been a year and a half later or something like that. And went up on the nose for three days and I had done more wall stuff, but Sarah's like a really gifted crack climber and free climber. And so really we made like the perfect nose team because like I had done, uh, you know, more things on the column and the leaning tower and the lost arrow spire and stuff. And, but like she could just climb the stove legs way better than I ever would be able to. And so really was like the perfect pairing. Cause I was like, okay, I really want the changing corners, the great roof, you know, and the glowering spot. And she was like, okay, I want the stove legs, you know, like she wanted all the great free pitches. And so we like, were the perfect pair and yeah, we, everything was going surprisingly smoothly. Um, the first day we went to Dalt, we kind of wanted to go to El Cap Tower, but Dalt was like fine. And we were just like so excited. And then the next day we just only made it to camp four and had like the worst bivy of my entire life. Like we didn't have a portal edge and we didn't even bring a stove or anything. We just like, I had like a can of cake frosting and like a bunch of Cheetos and stuff like the whole, <laughs> and like cans of coffee. Cause we like had no idea really like what to bring up there. And, but then we're like finally getting in the groove. Like the third day we're like speeding up. I mean, also our bags are lighter and the hauling's a lot easier on top. So that's something that made it a lot easier for us after the first day of like terrible hauling. Um, and not knowing anything about mechanical advantage systems or anything. And, but yeah, so we're getting, we're cruising and we're like, we're going to go to the top on the third day. This is going to be awesome. And, um, we're at the top of the changing corners and I had been so proud of like leading this pitch. It's like, you know, if you're not really free climbing, it's like one of the more difficult, like aid pitches on the route. And we'd finally made it up there. And then like out of nowhere, these two guys start rappelling on top of us, simul rappelling, Grigri's haul bags attached to their belay loops and they're like, what's up? And they're like wearing combat boots and stuff. And they've got like thick Texas accents. And we're just like, oh, hey. And they're like, hey, we're just, 
wrapping El Cap and we're going to pass you here. And we're like, no, I don't really feel like this is a good spot. And like, for people that have not been up there, like the nose has great ledges at almost, or at least a stance at almost every belay. Like it's not that steep, right? Especially the first half. But then you get up there and like the top of the changing corners is like a hanging belay, like a fully hanging belay. And so like, it's just not a very good place to pass someone, especially when you have all this stuff, you know, and they just like insist on like coming in and we're like, let's just get out of this anchor. And they're like, nope, we got to keep going. And it turns out they had tried to climb El Cap with all this dehydrated food and their stove was broken. So they were like, well, we're not going to have enough food. So they bailed and now they're wrapping it to spend three days up there to like have the same experience. And anyway, what happens is that they end up trying to come onto the anchor and in doing so one of Sarah's pigtails one of her braids gets stuck in one of these guys gris gris and everyone's just like oh no like this is really bad and we have to devise this whole plan to get him both of them to unweight but they're simul repelling so you can't just like they both need to unweight if anyone's gonna unweight you know like it was just like a ridiculously dramatic but it was the first time that I was like whoa we are not the Gumbies, you know, like someone else, like we're actually doing pretty okay. Like we're going slow and we're tired, but we haven't really like messed anything up. Um, the King's wing had been really hard, but after that we were like cruising and it was just like, yeah, it was an incredible time. We pushed through that night. Like we had gotten to camp six, which was like the last good bivy. Only, it was only like 5 PM that day from camp four or something. We're like, it's only 5 p.m. I kind of feel like we could just go to the top. And we didn't top out till midnight that night or something. But we're just like sleeping on flat ground is way better than sleeping on camp six. So you're like, it was definitely worth going. And Sarah and I have been climbing partners for so long. And it was like, yeah, there were really tense moments because we were both totally gripped. But it was just, yeah, it was like a really good first wall where like the partnership was perfect in that. Like when you talk about having complementary skills, like we balanced each other perfectly like she's super tough and a great free climber and I had a little bit more wall experience and so it was like really the perfect pairing for like a first trip up El Cap yeah I, I've just reminiscing here like being back here and in, in like looking at the walls like everything's beautiful and every time you're here it looks different like if you're trying to climb El Cap it maybe seems more intimidating like right now it just looks pretty <laughs> Yeah, <definitely. laughs> like just just looking up at it it looks pretty but like reminiscing you think about it, it's like god it especially with the wall climbing it just comes down to like your partner and like that's what like i just keep thinking about my partners that aren't here with me and they're most of them are still alive that i was up on el cap with but it's just like i'm here and it's just like i think about those people just as much as like the rock you know and um, but yeah and then and then going into um and i i guess you know in that essay you write you write about loss um, and then you also write about um, Quinn's um, accident on the nose that left her paralyzed, and that's that's a lot, and that's heavy. Was was writing that story? Did that help you process everything that had been happening? Or it's just hard stuff to talk about. But like, what, was writing an important part of of just processing? Because I know that is is it is that case for me, and it seemed like it's always tough when there's multiple incidents th that happen and then just all this layering of grief which I think a lot of us have experienced too you know like yeah 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 that was a crazy fall because like I was out here and I'd climbed the nose in a day barely by one minute 23 hours and I love that minutes. you might have yeah. the, uh, the 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 record for <laughs> I know <laughs> yeah. the longest, longest possible nose because yeah, yeah. like one yeah. or two more minutes and yeah. it's not an iad anymore yeah, you know I love and that. so you're like oh yeah, but it was like, even that was like an amazing day and we had a great time and knew it was going to take a long time. And then um, Josie 
I guess even earlier than that, Josie had been looking for a female partner to go up on the triple direct because it was, um, you know, one of the most classic routes on El Cap that we didn't think had had an all-female one-day ascent. Um, I mean, and the triple direct's kind of a weird route, right, in that it's only got one of its own pitches, but it's like the first, you climb the free blast, and then you climb this middle section of the mirror wall, and then you traverse onto the nose, and you come into the nose at Camp 4 and climb the nose to the top. But there's like this one connector pitch, but it also felt cool because for whatever reason, that was the first route on El Cap that saw an all-female ascent at all. And we're like, oh, not that many people climb it because it's just kind of this weird mashup, but also it's got so much good climbing on it, and we thought it'd be kind of fun. And we'd gone up in August, bailed because it was hot. That's when I met my husband, Bud, because he was in the meadow when we bailed. And then um, that fall, Quinn came into the valley, and Josie and I were out here, and I just kind of assumed that they, they would go climb it, and I would be out because, like, I was not nearly as qualified as them. But I Josie was like, oh, no, that was our plan. Like, if I'm going, you're going. And I just loved that, like, commitment to our climbing partnership, even though we barely knew each other. And I just felt like they made this point to mentor me in, like, this explicit way that I feel like you don't get so much anymore, which is that there was, like, an like it wasn't a secret that they would be faster without me, but they were taking me with them so that I could learn how to do what they do and which was so special and so we had this amazing day up there but I definitely felt like I was just starting to get caught up in how like amazing it can feel to climb big walls fast but like how how loose we were kind of playing it like I was definitely up there being so confident on hooks that I'm running up huge PDL off the anchor and just being like I'm not gonna fall and like it would be catastrophic if I did but I'm just not going to what's PDL PDL is the Pakistani death loop, which is like oh. when you just tie your rope off to the anchor and start climbing. And uh, gotcha. th- like when you're leading in blocks. So to be like, oh, like I'm going to lead. Yeah, or, yeah, you're short yeah. fixing, except that like the PDL is specific. Like you can short fix and put a grigri on and self-belay yourself, which is like not that sketchy, you know, um, or use a system of knots. Like, right. But the death loop is just when you tie it off to the anchor and start climbing. And you take all your slack because your partners are jugging behind you, but you are short fixing so that you can continue leading before they even get to you. And I was like doing some of those things. And if it was scary, I'd put the Grigri on. But if I felt really confident, maybe I wouldn't, you know. And I was just kind of like using sketchy systems to like move faster because I wasn't actually like that strong of a climber. Um, And but the only way I felt like I could move fast enough was like by kind of... um, taking shortcuts but we had no accidents and we had an incredible day and you know 16 and a half hours on El Cap for Josie and Quinn was like agonizingly long you know and they were work just from having been out there all day which is so much longer than they usually spend up there but for me like having just been up there in 24 hours it felt like so fast like I was so psyched and um yeah like I had just bought tickets to go to El Shal 10 for the winter and I felt like I was just like I am pretty badass and I'm gonna like just keep going bigger and bigger and faster. And then three days after our ascent of the triple direct is when Josie and Quinn went back up on the nose. Of course, I was like worked. I took like 10 rest days or something. And they took two rest days and we're like, well, let's go up on the nose. And um, that's when Quinn fell um, on the boot flake and um, yeah, ended up paralyzed. And I remember that my husband was a climbing ranger then. He, he's my husband now. He was my boyfriend then, but um he called me to let me know that something had happened and we all came down to the meadow and he was kind of part of like devising a strategy for the rescue because of course it's like smack dab in the middle of El Cap and like one of the hardest places to get to and um yeah like there was moments in there when we definitely thought that Quinn wasn't gonna make it like it seemed like an unsurvivable type of fall 
and um you know to fall a hundred feet and hit a ledge and um yeah I mean for Josie is one of my husband Bud's closest climbing partners too and just to like have that hit so close to home when you're feeling like so confident on top of the world I feel like really impacted me and like slowed me down in a way that I like feel really grateful for now but it also like is what drew me to working here on the search and rescue team because it felt so frustrating to not be able to do anything and at that point a lot of our friends were on SAR were climbing rangers and they're all like out in the meadow in yellow shirts planning the technical rescue planning the helicopter rescue putting all these things together and I was just like standing off to the side and I felt like wow I mean in like in retrospect right that like Quinn's alive in large part because Josie was with her and that like if you're gonna have a big accident on the side of El Cap like Josie's a pretty good person to want to be with because her like SAR skills are incredible her wilderness EMT skills are incredible like she just knew exactly what to do in that moment and I also had the realization that like I would have no idea what to do if I was up there doing the same sort of shit that I had been doing you know kind of fast and loose style and if something actually went wrong I wouldn't have had the like a clue about how to get us out of that situation and it really made me want to like learn more and be able to like help other people but yeah then it, the, the other part of the story that I wrote for the zine is um Niels Tietze's death um upon the Fifi buttress in which he um seemingly repelled off the end of his rope and um or had some sort of repelling accident and I didn't know Niels but he was um a close friend of Bud's and so for the both of us kind of in a new relationship just got hit with like this double whammy of grief and um yeah still were had these plane tickets to go down south for the winter and didn't really know how we felt about that anymore and yeah I mean at that point climbing had just totally been all fun and games for me and really quickly it wasn't but I also kind of feel grateful that that happened to me before I went to Patagonia because I think that I if I had gone there with the level of confidence like undeserving confidence that I had like I feel like I could have put myself in situations that I probably shouldn't have been in whereas I actually just went down there and like hiked around and did some of the approaches and checked things out because I was like I don't belong here like I'm not really prepared for this but yeah as far as I know you asked about writing but yeah I mean at that point I felt like a writer in my heart I guess but I was like writing a lot of gear reviews and stuff like that and not really that much of a creative writer like even still it's one of the only like really personal essays that I've ever written I definitely like much prefer to write about other people yeah and I I kept after that because and I've learned since then um like sometimes when somebody writes a really good essay I'll just keep following up like hey you got another one and, and occasionally people will go on runs but I feel like sometimes it's it's just this one beautiful essay comes out of someone and you don't need to try to replicate it or whatever and and um yeah you, you just yeah you, you put that in and then but then you were like oh, i'm writing this book <laughs> you're like leave me alone <laughs> and uh um i from my perspective it was like yeah you, you like talked about this book and then three years later it's out and like um it's it's such a um you know i, I personally don't read a lot of climbing books because I spend all of my time working with climbing stories yeah, and seeking sure. them <laughs> and like, but I, I read that book because they were so kind to let us publish um, an excerpt. And um, I'd also, speaking of people I've been like hounding for years, Beth Rodden was someone I've been asking for seven or eight years to write for us. And she's always been very nice. Hers was my, my personal favorite in the book. But uh, yeah, can you just talk about, I guess, like 
what uh i mean I, I, my my head is kind of sp- spinning cuz like everything you presented the other night was so interesting and then everything in the book there's so much going on but like you can you just tell us a little bit about how the project kind of started for you yeah i feel like it started just like so naively and earnestly in that I was just here in the park and started to learn more and hear about all these people like Mary Braun and Joe Whitford and all these like badass ladies that had been in the park and had worked on SAR before and like they were just part of this community that like never really made big names for themselves or wrote much about themselves and I just was like I was like oh it'd be so cool to have all those written down and like I don't know, I probably molded over for almost two years just even thinking about, well, what would that look like in theory? Like, would it be a collection or would it be more like, um, you know, there's been a lot of great um, Yosemite history books that are written by one person with done with interviews. And so it would be like, okay, if I was going to do that, what would I want it to look like? And once I started realizing that, like, no, I think a collection would be really cool, it made it feel a little more doable because I was like, oh, I don't have to write 80,000 words. I'm going to ask... 38 people to write 1500 words you know and we'll like work our way up together and I think something about that as someone who really likes organizing and spreadsheets and like I don't know event planning almost like it kind of felt like that like putting all the pieces together and take a little bit of the pressure off of each person right because you just need a collection and you ask one person and they're too busy or they don't want to or they've passed away and they didn't leave any writings and you're like it's okay like we'll move on to the next person and like I don't know something about it was just so slow and I mean I probably thought about it for two years before I started to think I think I'm actually gonna do that and like started talking to people who were all like yeah sure it seems like a good idea but those were all Yosemite people so I don't think I really like knew how big of a reach it was gonna be but once I decided to pitch it to outlets then it like became real really quickly but also gave me great direction because like Mountaineers books has a submission form on their website where you can see exactly what they want to know when you're pitching a book. And so it gave me a little bit of structure to work off of, but I probably spent a year just like working on the pitch, you know, which like really helped me focus it because they wanted me to say, what's the structure going to be like, make a table of contents, you know, that you think would be similar to what it's going to end up being. And I felt like that was when I started to be like starting to admit that it was like kind of real. Do you feel like, you were like you get like this transported back to the past in a way um like i you one image that's just in my head is that woman who was making her own pitons and stanford in the 1952 or yeah. something do you get that like kind of goosebumps feeling of like I, I feel like i get and the reason i'm saying that is like sometimes i feel like that when you're just like so immersed in something you're like now i'm back in this forgotten era and then you're almost you're you're coming across a story that maybe like how'd you even find that photo of her I found that photo of B Vogel because I knew that Stanford's um, Alpine Club had been hugely influential in early Yosemite's climbing because I mean it was hard to learn how to climb then you, you can just like go to REI and take a class or go to a climbing gym or buy your own gear and so the you know Yosemite climbing in like the 30s through the 60s really was like largely dominated by clubs Sierra Club Stanford Alpine Club um and like a lot of climbers from the Bay Area basically coming out here on the weekends and so those clubs were huge and so I was doing a lot of early research in their archives which is like how I learned about her and I was really surprised at all to like go through their archives and they just have folders listed online for like each person that they collected information on and there were so many women like I was totally shocked and it was kind of a wild 
Goose Chase because it was COVID times and the um, libraries at Stanford weren't open to visiting researchers, but they have amazing librarians. Speaking of like, yeah, just loving librarians. Like the people in the special collections there are just amazing. And um, we basically went back and forth for months with me saying, oh, I'm really interested in what's in this file because you could basically see a table of contents for their archives without being able to see any of the materials that haven't been digitized. And so I'd be like, can you go through this box and let me know if there's anything that seems to be about rock climbing or Yosemite in it? And then a couple of weeks would go by and they'd get back to me with a bunch of PDF scans. And like, it was really slow, but a lot of the early information from this book came from those librarians and archivists at Stanford. Yeah, I love, I'm a huge history buff. Like I've always been super into history as a climber and probably just as a person. Like I love thinking about how things that are happening today are influenced by history and like how yeah, everything that happens happens for a reason. And I feel like you just see these amazing patterns when you're like well-informed about history. And yeah, I just loved it. And I definitely felt that way through the book. Like the early chapters are, were my favorites to work on because I felt like such a nerd, just like going through archives and like getting to, even going down to the National Park Service archives here in Yosemite and like getting to dig through old photos and about um, a lot of that didn't make it into my book because I decided to start with like roped climbing, but even just getting an understanding of how that came out of, you know, even the cables on half dome and scrambling and peak bagging and like how quickly peak bagging became like more technical climbing and like just having a sense of like where all that stuff came from. I love that stuff. Um, working with like the more modern chapters in the book was fun because it's cool to like get to actually talk to those people. Like I didn't talk to most of the people in the first, almost the first two chapters of the book have quite a few people that are no longer around, but it was almost even more fun to like felt like a real challenge then to like go back and find some of their original writings and interviews that they had done and stuff. And yeah, I just, I love like a treasure hunt and it really felt that way. It's post-World War II, right? Mm -hmm. Like that time period where America was kind of changing in a profound way and booming and, and all these different things. And what insight did you get of who these people were? Yeah, it's cool. So like roped climbing came to Yosemite in the mid 30s and came really out of World War One, where um, Americans were coming back with like information and gear on how to do that type of climbing from their time in Europe. And like climbing obviously is was much more developed in Europe than it was in the U.S. at the time. So people were, you know, these guys were going over there and learning about them climbing and coming back and bringing those tactics. And then World War II is really interesting. Like you see a lot of during World War II, you see a lot when you look at rosters for the Stanford Alpine Club and Sierra Club trips and stuff like there's a lot more women on those trips then, presumably because um, a lot of men were off at war you know but I think it like left women here with like almost it seems like more opportunity in a lot of ways to like fill in those gaps but then it really dips off in the 50s again and I you know I'm not a historian but I feel like when I think of the 50s I think a lot of like a return to home life and domesticity and things like that and I don't really know how big of a deal it played with it in climbing but I do know that at the time some of the biggest climbers in the especially in the Yosemite scene, probably in most of the U.S., were at pres prestigious academic institutions. And I don't know if it's just like a privilege thing or if it's that climbing was so, I don't know, tied to engineering almost at the time. Like, But you just see, like when you look through the first couple chapters of my book, there's like a high number of women with PhDs when getting a PhD as a woman was like a pretty rare thing. And I don't totally know like exactly why that was and it might just have been that climbing was only accessible through these bay area clubs 
Um, but it is a really interesting tie and something that I feel like if you're going to go look through this book, you know, I wrote all the bios, hundred word bios for each of the women in it. And I was so surprised at how many of them went on after climbing to have huge careers in academia or just like continue their educations in a variety of different ways. And they might've only been climbing while they were an undergrad and then their life went in a different direction. But yeah, climbing also didn't seem at the time, speaking of mostly like the fifties and the sixties to like consume people's entire lives like it does now like it was a thing that a lot of them did and loved but then it wasn't like there wasn't like a career path through climbing and so a lot of them also even if they kept climbing their whole lives like had amazing careers doing some other really um impressive thing and I just felt like the people then were just so impressive and it might be that like sometimes I think it might just be that in order to be a woman and a climber at that time, you had to be like a really go-getter type of personality. Like it wasn't easy to learn how to climb and maybe you just needed to be like a really tenacious type of person. So I don't, or is it just that that was only available to like a privileged few at those institutions? Probably some mix of both. Um, but yeah, it's just so cool to think about what climbing was like then because it is entirely different than what it's like now. Yeah, it's, I wrote a review of the book Yosemite in the 50s, which is a beautiful book. Mm-hmm. But I, I think the last sentence I wrote in it is like, if there were any women climbing in Yosemite in the 50s, they were included in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that seems to be ringing true that they were there. Gosh, how cool would it be if there was just one of them that was still around or like, I'm sure their stories would just have oh, been yeah. amazed, amazing. So it's it's so cool that you're recording it, but gosh, it would it would have been so fun to like listen to an old lady talk about being a woman climbing in the in the 50s did you uh did you uncover any history of like indigenous climbing in the area i know there's the essay um and i'm blanking on the author where um they said they found like some um pottery or something by separate reality uh, yeah lucy parker's story um Mm -hmm. can you tell me about that yeah um i do know and it's not a lot of it isn't included in this book because I decided to kind of cut off the history at the beginning of roped climbing, though there's definitely a long and storied history of indigenous communities here doing what we probably would today call like scrambling, you know, definitely at least up to fourth class terrain and all the gullies and everything um, here in the valley and especially in the high country. Like you find evidence of indigenous communities like in really interesting places up in the high country. And then, yeah, Lucy Parker is this, like, amazing example of, like, this confluence of climbing culture and the indigenous community because, you know, her family has has been tied to Yosemite for generations and generations. And she was growing up in the village that was next to Camp 4 at the time. Gosh, this must have been the 60s. Yeah, is that the village they're kind of recreating Yeah, they're right recreating now? it now. That was, um, that was really cool to see that, yeah. Oh, it's so cool. Yeah, so they're recreating that village next to Camp 4 now, but in the 60s, at least when Lucy was growing up, it was like totally inhabited by the indigenous community. And she would walk through camp four to go to the school every day, which is over in the village by the store and visitor center and everything. And she would just like slow, as she got older, she would like start to like meet climbers and um, fell in with the stone masters. And it like, yeah, her, her talking about this is so cool because it's like, wow, you just, you're actually from Yosemite and you ended up falling in with like some of the most prolific rock climbers of all time. And um, yeah, she brings this like incredible perspective to the park and connecting all these dots through different types of like the park's history. And yeah, her story in the book is about going up with Ron Kauk to separate reality, which is like when they found 
se- the the roof that is separate reality and the climbs underneath it, which like hadn't never been climbed before. I just did that yesterday. Oh, you did! I awesome. flail. I, I got my it's ass epic. kicked. That thing is hard. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about that. So they found it, and then what what was the connection with the uh, like the pottery? Or yeah, they were um. So Lucy's family. And her mom, Dr. Julia Parker, is like a world-renowned basket maker. And her family's history is like very tied to basket making. And so she has this amazing story about scrambling up in the boulders there with Ron and seeing something like in a little crevice in between the boulders and scrambling down and finding this little cave that had some old Native American baskets in it. And like, I just love this image of like these kind of two worlds colliding and these like parts of who Lucy is and like what ties her so strongly to the valley and yeah i love that story she's such a she's such a badass she's such a cool person and was that such an interesting place to like get to observe climbing culture and be part of it but also have this kind of like outside view on what it was like to observe climbers kind of come and go from the valley when she has this like other um connection to this place Mm -hmm. there's some crazy stuff out in in bears ears that's like fifth class for sure like in the the moki steps that they build and then the making ropes out of uh yucca is there any evidence of like um rope rope making out here or god that's a great question Uh, i don't know anything about it but i feel like it would be really cool to do i'm just always signing myself for more projects basically but now i'm like (laughs) oh you could do a whole history thing on like yeah like indigenous climbing history in Uh the park because i'm like there's got i feel like there's just got to be especially like with all the um, all the gullies and ways in and out of the valley, mm-hmm. you know, that like now we think of as climber approach and descents or, mm-hmm. or it's just like as being really heinous, you yeah. know, like very <laughs> few people go up what we call Indian Canyon, you know, mm. to the right of um, Yosemite Falls and the Lost Aerospire, like behind the village kind of. Um, but I definitely have talked to people who've gone up there and just feel like it's a really special place, but not a lot of climbers go up there because it's just kind of like heinous, bushwhacky, loose rock but it like would have definitely been climbable to people a really long time ago and so i imagine that not just that but all the gullies like around the cathedrals and stuff like you can get up high there and it's hard to imagine that people wouldn't have been going up there for a variety of reasons but i don't know that much about that and i feel like there's i'm sure there's some really interesting stuff i always reference the josh uh Ewing and Len Nesper both wrote, mm-hmm. coincidentally, I love, like, the zine always has some of these weird intersections, like, they pitched me these two stories independently, and then I found out that, you know, Yucca Ropes existed, and then, like, finding out about the crazy Moki Step roots, and it's it's so fascinating, you know, and, like, Indigenous people were definitely the first climbers of many of these climbing areas that, that we're at now. Yeah, and, like, that's, yeah, it's interesting to compare this, like, with the desert in that way, yeah, because, like, yeah. I feel like a lot of that evidence is more evident, yeah. maybe, in the desert, and it might just be the, part of it, I'm sure, is the type of landscape, in that, mm-hmm. like, it's, I don't know, it's so rocky out there, you know, like, not as vegetated in a lot of ways as the valley is, and so you're like, oh, yeah, it makes sense that, like, you can see these structures out there, but also, like, those communities were systematically removed from the valley. And mm-hmm. so it makes sense that when you come here, it'd be really easy to not connect with the indigenous history of the place because mm-hmm. it was decidedly removed from mm-hmm. the park from view, you know? But yeah, like that's one of my favorite parts about climbing in the desert. I was out at um, the Texas Tower once uh-huh. and there's like some really amazing stuff out there. Mm-hmm. That's a wild Mm-hmm. Choss Tower. <laughs> in my brief stint into <laughs> desert Choss Tower climbing. Yeah, there's a there's an article in the one of the volumes by Josh Smith 
great great article and then and some of those artifacts I, I think or he he sent me pictures i'm not sure if i published them but oh that's so cool yeah in well in the bears ears area too it's it's connected to the, the big drought that was like a thousand years ago too oh, and how cool. people moved in the drought and then like if there was you know warring between you know different different groups and, mm-hmm. and different stuff like that so i feel like the desert and i'm sure there's more to learn in, in that history mm-hmm. and especially that we're in a drought now too it's just on you yeah. know on the mind it's like you know um anyways what else were uh, some highlights of uh of working on the book uh i had so much fun putting the pictures together and i i've definitely a lot of people have asked me to put together like a coffee table style book of it which like i still feel like would be amazing but those types of books are really expensive to put together because you want to like compensate all your um, photographers and like the permissions and things can be really hard and they're like really expensive to print and um those types of like photo books often are like more of a collector's item and stuff but yeah the photos was so cool for me to feel like okay which photos and just pairing them with stories and feeling like at first I was hoping to have a photo go with each story but then I realized that the photos were kind of an opportunity to include even more people that didn't have like not everyone wanted to contribute a story so like I mentioned Joe Whitford earlier and you know the writing of the story was not going to be like the storytelling mode that she was psyched on, but then she had these incredible photos and she connected me with the photographer. And so I felt like, Ooh, actually we can just include even more women by like including them in the photos. And then I had tons of fun thinking of like, yeah, who else to include? Because like, yeah, I feel something I think a lot about is hearing once, um, Steck, Alan Steck talk about how, you know, their 50 classic climbs of North America is like often, he's like, people always think of it as the 50 classic climbs, but we really just meant that these are some 50 classic, like these are just 50 classic of some of the climbs out there, of many, many classic climbs. And I hope to also tell people that like, oh, this book is just some stories from some women because there's so many more. And I just loved the photos because I feel like they just perfectly illustrate like all these different eras and climbing and like, you know, just like different approaches to femininity within climbing and things like that and yeah someone who's not a photo person um the stories came maybe a little more easily to me but um trying to pick photos that complemented the book but also kind of expanded it even more was like one of my favorite challenges and you mentioned the challenge of slides which i've had these <laughs> challenges too yeah. um one time Brooke Sandall, you know Brooke Sandall, you know that name? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He I feel like he's one of the like most underrated like climbers oh, of all sure. time. Um but he did a photo essay in volume eight, which is out of print, but he's like, hey, I got photos and he just mailed me these slides. And I'm like and there's like slides of like unpublished photos of because he was Lynn Hill's partner when right. she first freed the nose. And I know she had a lot of partners, but I think he was with and he was mm-hmm. working on it as yeah. well. And and then chose to um support her but he like mailed me these slides and then i fell and then he kept hounding me he's like all right send them back now and i'm like how do i like do all the what slide stuff and these? and i had a different journey you sounded like you had a really fun journey with uh what was the gentleman's name uh john john dill john yeah. dill at first i thought you said john gill and i was like john gill that's, that's another famous climber but mm-hmm. and then i remember john dill from the old like don reed guidebooks where he'd write oh, this yeah. like 10 page introduction about accidents mm-hmm. and uh so he was your he was your gateway to figuring out how don't you don't you just think it's amazing that people put books out bef- in newspapers before computers? <laughs> oh, <laughs> like, it's totally it? insane. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's just such a different process, like collecting yeah. all the photos. Because then you talk to like, um, you're like, oh, I really want these great pictures of Babsy, right? Because like, yeah. it's so beautiful to see her free climbing up on El Cap. And you just like, 
talk to Francois and say, oh, okay. And he just sends you, you know, a zip file of a bunch of, you know, or a Dropbox right. link to all these yeah. files or something. And then you ask like Molly Higgins for some pictures of the nose and she just sends you a box of 35 millimeter slides. And you're like, whoa, we've come a really long way. Yeah. But it's so cool. Like the images were just like such high quality. And yeah, another shout out to the Alpine Club, the American Alpine Club Library, because they have a slide scanner and they have librarians and they really made that happen. Like John Dell helped me like organize them and see them because I just had a box of slides that I was holding up to the sun when I went to him. But once he helped me just see them and realize that all the photos were so good, I like still couldn't afford to digitize them because it's really expensive to digitize slides. So then I reached out to the American Alpine Club and they did it. And um, it's pretty amazing to like have all those slides because even like the people in them hadn't seen them in a really long time. So then we, I digitized them all. I didn't talk about this at my talk the other night because I could go on forever. But then um, I got Molly Higgins, Barbie Smith, and Sue Giller who are in those photos of Molly's and um, all in a Zoom call. And I would like share my screen and we'd like go through the photos and they would like tell me all the stories that went along with them and where they were on each one. And they remembered so many incredible details. And that was like a really cool moment to like get them all there's they have some great history of like making some of the maybe the or maybe one of the earliest all-female sense of the diamond too and like just really cool climbing history and stuff and um yeah I love like connecting with older folks and listening to their stories and I spent like a lot of time with like Ellie Hawkins down in Joshua Tree too hearing stories of hers and but the photos just like make everything sharper. Like you have an idea of what things are like and then you see it in a photo and I feel like it just like kind of clicks into place. I know I'm thinking of the two, we, the Mountaineers books was so generous um, with, with the photos and I think I'm now I'm remembering I need to send a couple more checks out to people, but uh, <laughs> the, uh, yeah, just the imagery of like the lady who was repelling with a body repel on a mm-hmm. hemp rope, I'm guessing. Yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, Chelsea Griffey on uh, Separate Reality, oh, kind of like 90s amazing. style. And I think she was, she was the first black woman to climb El Cap. Yeah, yeah. Chelsea was. Um, I'd never heard of her before the book either. And yeah, she, she seems like she was a legend. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She's amazing. She lives yeah. in Oakland. She, mm-hmm. like, up until I think a couple of years ago, was teaching these amazing, like, um, women of color backpacking retreats through Balance Rock here in the park. They're a, they do a lot of, like, yoga classes and um, really like artful, mindful retreats in the park. And she was doing these amazing stuff with them. And yeah, she's really cool, but totally under the cover. And she was someone who was like, I just never told anyone that I climbed El Cap because I didn't think anyone like really cleared. Like she climbed Lurking Fear and was just like, whatever. She later climbed the Zodiac with um, Jackie Florine, Hans's um, first wife and just like an amazing person, but super under the radar. Like I had to pry these stories out from her and you'd be like what was that like she'd be like it was really cool (laughs) and you'd be like no no tell me more about that and I was like oh this is the perfect example of like people just being so humble that you're having to like convince them that their story is like worth telling in the first place I I see a lot of that with older climbers too is the extreme humility and and I think that was more embedded in our sport it was interesting because some people were self-promoters and their stories are more preserved and I feel like you know Yosemite is actually especially the male climbers, it's the most preserved history of any rock climbing in the world and the most famous. And yeah, it's, it's, uh, that extreme humility was definitely part of, oh, yeah. of climbing. And I think it still is, but like they, they practice it to almost like a, uh, I don't even know what the word is, but extreme level of oh, just yeah. being incredibly humble. And, and I guess now we're living in like the age of 
self-promotion, even if you're not a self-promoter, you're encouraged, if you have an Instagram account, you're encouraged to be, um, I guess, you know, self-promoting. But uh, yeah, that's, thank you for for uncovering all that. And um, hopefully it will continue to uncover more. Um, I'm fascinated by the fact that you are now getting a master's degree in journalism. What is your interest in journalism and where where do you want to, where do you want to take it? Yeah, it's pretty cool. So the book kind of led me, I think when I started writing the book, this is something I reflected on a lot actually, is that like, I thought that I, or I started out thinking like, I'm going to make a climbing history book. And then by the end, I realized that I had also kind of created a women's history book and that like what I, that like climbing was the vehicle, but these were just like, like that this could apply to so many things. And I was like, wow, I just like loved having this opportunity to like help draw these stories out of this like otherwise kind of marginalized community. And I was like, that's what I really like. And I was like, oh yeah, I like talking about climbing, whatever, climbing's cool. But I was like really just connecting with women and talking about their histories is what I got, what like was really psyched on. And so that's kind of like what led me to journalism school. And when I applied to Berkeley where I am now, I just talked a lot about how like, oh, what I realized I was doing after was like really lifting up the voices of this um, kind of forgotten history and this like often overlooked community and that that applies to pretty much everything. And so now there I'm doing a lot. I'm still doing a lot of like climbing related things. I'm um, working some with the Dirtbag Diaries and Climbing Gold and like I just love climbing history and I can't get enough of it. But a lot of my work at Berkeley is also focused a lot on like women's health and environmental things. And I feel like I dip into climbing related stuff when I when there's like a really meaningful story. But I've moved away from it a little bit just, you know, just trying to like expand my storytelling skill set and um, yeah, learn to like write in lots of different styles and um, you know, do some newspaper things and some radio things and just like learn how to communicate better and about different types of things. But I'm loving it. It's really hard. It's a lot of work, but um, yeah, I'm doing a lot of audio production as well there, which, and they have a great audio journalism program. And so I'm really psyched on that. Journalism's just changing so much. Um, but I think the storytelling component of it all is, is what the central theme is that will continue to be relevant where it's, it's you know, I feel like so many people get their information from podcasts. Mm-hmm. That's why we started a podcast. Just like, and, oh, and yeah. now I hear younger people from like 18 to 22, they're more like, oh, I love your podcast and not the zine. <laughs> so That's I'm like, funny. yeah, yeah. Well, I feel like, yeah, like there's just so much information being thrown at us all the time now that I feel like even journalists today need to focus on the craft of storytelling even more than before because you like really need to keep people's attention. Like you want someone to read a 3000 word magazine feature, like it better be interesting because like, even you know, and just compelling, like there's so many things fighting for our attention all the time that like, I feel like something I love about my program too is like focusing on like yeah, you could do great reporting, but like if you can't convey it in a way that people are going to find compelling, like it's not going to have the impact that you want, even if the subject feels so important. And so, yeah, I feel like that's true storytelling and like writing quality and audio production quality and like making things fun and enjoyable to listen to is a huge part of it in a way that I imagine hasn't always been because yeah, we're just having to like journalists have to compete, you know, with tons of different things that are like taking people's attention. Yeah, I mean, uh, like think, sit, thinking about sitting down and like reading a New York Times article, it's like I re- I check the New York Times every day, but I don't think I ever read a 3000 word article, yeah, exactly. especially online. Um, I, the, the last quana- question I want to ask you is um, what your relationship is to climbing now. I mean, you've um, you've seen all the ups and downs of climbing. Um, you're married. You're getting a master's degree. I imagine your schedule is, is very full. 
um, how has your, your relationship to climbing evolved and, and what does it currently mean to you and, and what do you still enjoy about climbing? Yeah, it's interesting. Like right now, honestly, like my connection with climbing is more of like, it's distant for sure. Like I just don't get out that much. And I think at first that was really hard for me. Like it's hard. I feel like a lot of people can relate to like, oh, you have moments where you're like in really great shape and you're climbing harder and harder things all the time. And then if you're in a, you know, in a bit of a dip in performance, it's kind of hard, especially when you come back to a place like Yosemite where I've spent a lot of time and you're like, oh, I used to be able to climb those routes and like, I can't really climb them anymore. So maybe I shouldn't go there. But now I feel like the role that climbing plays in my life is like just this larger scale appreciation and that it like gave me everything that I feel like I have. Like when I come to Yosemite, I just go, wow, this place gave me community and the book and the book led me to school and, you know, my husband and all my friends and like all of this stuff is related to climbing. And I feel like, yeah, I don't get out quite as much anymore, but I feel like I'm having to learn slowly how to just like appreciate moving, even if it's easy, you know, and um yeah appreciate just like time being outside away from a computer which isn't something that like I used to think that much about because I lived in Yosemite in a tent and didn't have to like appreciate that as much um whereas now I feel like I have to fight for it a lot and yeah I mean I love climbing but it's definitely also I feel like taken a lot from me like you know I worked SAR here in the park too like there's roots and areas of the park that I really don't like to go to because they remind me of really hard things that I had to do there and so I feel like, yeah, I'm actually like really feeling in between of like trying to find out like, oh, I'm definitely moving into like a new stage in my life in which like climbing, I want to be part of it, but isn't the single driving force anymore. And I'm struggling as I feel like a lot of people have, especially those that were super like that worked here in the park for a long time to like redefine what climbing means to them when it's not like the only thing that you're making decisions based around anymore. Um, yeah. And so I feel like for me, it still just like comes with a lot of ups and downs and days when I love it and days when I feel frustrated that like I can't do moves that I used to be able to do or not feeling disappointed passing by a route that I sent once and knowing that like I couldn't even pull off the ground on it now, you know, and looking up at El Cap and being like, wow, I had some really amazing times up there. I wonder if I'll ever go up there again, you know, and trying to like be okay with whatever climbing is for me now. But yeah, I'm definitely like kind of, I don't know, it comes in waves. Yeah, I mean that, that's a very mature look at climbing as a uh, a thirty. I think you're definitely an old soul, <laughs> <laughs> um, but that that's a very like mature look at um, at climbing. And um, I, I feel similar. I feel like every wall it, like contains a memory of a person, and then some some memories aren't. I mean, you've you've seen the extremes by being on SAR and stuff, but yeah, like this place is, it holds a lot of like memories um, from from both sides and. Um, I'm impressed with your community that you all have here. I hadn't been here in nine years and wow. um, I wish there could be like three more nights of the facelift. I'm kind of totally exhausted and like yeah. need to leave, but like um, it'll definitely be sad to be driving out of here in a little bit. Um, but um, I feel like I want to come back every year for the facelift now, just after mm -hmm. experiencing it this year and um, just seeing how everyone bands together here. And it seems like even if there's a lot of, disagreements like going to that and did you go to that big wall forum mm -hmm. yeah i feel like there was so much disag open disagreement that i had never seen in person yeah related to climbing you know and i think that's healthy and so i'm yeah just you've, you've played a big role in this community and um i just yeah want to thank you for your efforts and and i think our community is is definitely a special one and um it's especially special here in <laughs> yosemite valley yeah, yeah, the climbing community is super special to me. I mean, climbing's given me so much. Like, it's totally defined my entire adult life. And, 
yeah, I mean, I still have that like feeling of, um, you know, butterflies in my stomach when I pull into the Valley for the first time, even if it's, you know, whether it's been a week away or months away or a year away. And just like this place is so special to me and I feel so lucky that I'm able to be a part of it. And, um, realizing like how, how special this book is to a lot of people is just like overwhelmingly meaningful for me. And, um, yeah, something that I honestly like wasn't really totally anticipating. Like I really felt like I just started by being like, well, I'm going to make the book that I wanted to read when I was a new climber and it didn't exist. And so realizing how important that is to a lot of people is just, yeah, like I feel incredibly lucky. Like I definitely, I've been saying to a lot of people that like, I did always know that a book about the history of women climbing in Yosemite was a really good idea, but I took me a long time to convince myself that I could do it. And, um, or that I was almost worthy of doing it. Like that I was the right person to do it. And, um, yeah, now having the book out and like feeling that love back from the community and that like gratefulness that people have is just, yeah, it's this in particular has been a really special weekend here. Well, I know I speak for many people and we are excited to see what you put out next. And um, thank you so much. Cool. Thanks, Luke. All right. That was my conversation with Lauren Delaney Miller. As I said, I just really, truly enjoyed that. It was the final thing I did when I was in Yosemite for the facelift. I was exhausted at the end of it, but my spirit was full. It was a perfect note to end that trip on. Her book is published by Mountaineers Books, Valley of Giants, and there's a link in our show notes to get a copy. Um, highly recommend it. Some great untold stories. Um, and if you ever get a chance to see Lauren present, she's really good at it, and um, she, she somehow crafts a slideshow to be incredibly interesting and um, just talking about all the logistics of creating a book, which is always harder than you think. I've, I've done five books and um, 24 zines, and each time I'm amazed by how difficult it is to get everything together packaged up into that neat little book. Music for this episode is by Devin Dabney. Chad Rich is our digital editor and producer. And signing off from Durango, Colorado. It's Splitter Outside, and I'm going to the creek. Peace.